Tonight we pick it up in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7, and we hope tonight to finish this great work of the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll notice, we spent three or maybe four weeks on just chapter 5, and then I think we spent two weeks on chapter 6, and then tonight I think we're just going to spend one week, one evening studying Matthew chapter 7. And it's not because the content becomes less important, but I do think it becomes less concentrated. After all, in Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you have those amazing Beatitudes. And each one of those Beatitudes, you could talk for a half hour or hour upon. And then you have the very detailed way that Jesus talked about the true interpretation of the law. And then on into chapter 6, he talked about the right kind of faith to have, the right kind of faith to practice, I should say, how to fast in the right way, how to lay up treasures in heaven in the right way, how to pray the right way, how to do these spiritual disciplines of giving, fasting, praying in a way that really pleased God and went beyond just an outward religious show. But now, as we come into chapter 7, Jesus is dealing more than in the previous sections, I won't say exclusively because he touched on this idea in the previous sections on the Sermon on the Mount, but chapter 7 is more about the way we treat other people. Now, when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, I honestly believe that it was more or less the standard sermon that he preached to those who would listen to him, those who were followers of his in some kind, announcing the kind of kingdom that he, as the king, came to bring. He's saying, this is what a kingdom citizen in my kingdom looks like. And so that is the profile that he presents to us through the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the right kind of person in Jesus' kingdom, let me say, I don't like how that sounded, the right kind of person. Let's say, a, a true citizen of Jesus' kingdom. It doesn't just matter how he relates to God, right? He has to pray the right way. He has to fast the right way. He has to have his heart right before God in a certain way. But it also matters very much how he treats his fellow man, right? I mean, our walk with God isn't just between us and God. It's also very evident in the way that we treat one another. And so that is going to be a significant theme through the first part of chapter 7. Then, at the end of chapter 7, sort of the second part of it, you're going to see Jesus speak in a very powerful way as a, if I could say it, as a brilliant preacher calling his listeners to a decision. So let's hear Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now, when Jesus said these words, judge not that you not be judged, again, he's bringing it back to a theme that he touched on previously in the Sermon on the Mount, but did not emphasize so much. He's bringing it back to the theme of how we treat one another. Now, if you remember, previously in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that if we were going to come into the kingdom of God, we would have to have a righteousness that exceeded, that went beyond the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that was a big righteousness, right? Because the scribes and the Pharisees were famous for their very minute, scrupulous observance 
of the Mosaic law. And Jesus took a look at those guys and he said, you're going to have to do even better than the Pharisees in terms of righteousness if you want to come into the kingdom. Well, listen, you know how it works with people. You know human nature. You know yourself. You know others. Oftentimes, when we want to raise our own righteousness, we do it by tearing down the righteousness of other people, right? You see, if I convince myself that you are really a terrible person, I feel more righteous without having to do anything, right? I haven't been any more pleasing to God. I haven't done any more good works. I haven't trusted in Jesus Christ in any greater depth. But because I have lowered you, I feel myself higher. And Jesus refuses to let us buy into that game when he says, judge not lest you be judged. Now notice, with this command... Jesus warned us against passing judgment upon others because when we do so, we will be judged in a similar manner. Now these two verses, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, judge not that you not be judged. I think that among those who do not know the Bible, this is the verse that seems to be most popular to them. Sometimes I think that this is the most quoted Bible verse in the world today. Because anytime somebody criticizes another person's behavior or, or says that another kind of behavior is sinful, people instantly know that verse. They don't know anything else in the Bible, but they know, judge not that you not be judged. Hey, don't judge me, man. Don't evaluate my behavior according to any kind of biblical standard. But we have to admit, most people who quote this verse don't understand what Jesus said. They seem to think, or perhaps just hope, that Jesus commanded a universal acceptance of any kind of lifestyle, of any kind of teaching. Now listen, anybody who knows the ministry of Jesus in totality, can anybody think that Jesus said, you must accept any kind of lifestyle and you must accept any kind of teaching? No! If that's what Jesus meant by this, then Jesus broke this command himself all the time. You know, one of the most famous examples of this, and believe me, we'll get to it eventually. I know we're going through the Gospel of Matthew kind of slow, but eventually we're going to get to Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus pronounces the most intense woes, the most intense rebukes, the most intense criticisms upon the Pharisees and the scribes. Over and over again, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees! And then he details their wicked actions, and he tells them the judgment that's going to come their way. Now, can you imagine a Pharisee answering back Jesus? Now, Jesus, judge not, lest you be judged. Could you imagine them saying such a thing? No, 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 they didn't, because that isn't what Jesus meant by this. You see, a little later in the text that we're going to take a look at tonight, Jesus commanded us to know ourselves and to know others by the fruit of their life. And some kind of assessment is necessary for that. Now understand, the Christian is called to show unconditional love. But the Christian is not called to show unconditional approval. And this is the big line that many people miss today. And I want to tell you something. I want to set you free with something tonight. I'll tell you, you really can love somebody who does things that should not be approved of. It's very possible. It's what God does with us all the time. You can really love a person who does things that should not be approved of. 
In other words, I can say, I do not approve of your conduct. I think the way you're living your life is wrong. But I love you. I love you with the love of Christ, and I love you with the love he has put into my heart. We have confused something in our modern society. We have confused tolerance with acceptance. Now, we as Christians, we believe in tolerance. Do you understand what tolerance is? Tolerance is not approval. Tolerance is saying, I disagree with you, but I'm not going to pass a law against you. I disagree with you, but I'm not going to persecute you. I disagree with you, but I'm going to fight for the right for you to live your life your way. That's what tolerance says. Tolerance says, I'm not going to persecute you or kill you for the way you live your life, even though I disagree with it. What acceptance says, it says the way you live your life is good. And that is something that Christians can't say in many contexts. In many of the ways people live their lives today, we cannot say that the way they live their life is good. But we can say God loves them. We love them. God wants to change their life. So, while this command of Jesus does not prohibit us from examining the lives of other people, it certainly prohibits the spirit in which many people examine the lives of other people. Because let's face it, many, many Christians are guilty of breaking this command of Jesus. Judge not that you not be judged. You want to know a good example of this kind of unjust judgment? A good example of this is the condemnation of the disciples of the woman who came to anoint the feet of Jesus with oil. Do you remember that? There she was, anointing the feet of Jesus with oil. And what were the disciples standing back and saying? They were saying, you know what? What a waste of money this is. She's a sinful woman. She shouldn't be allowed to do this. And what did Jesus say in reply? Jesus said, no, she's not wasting anything. She's doing a good work that would always be remembered. But there are the disciples of there criticizing her, judging her, acting as if they know the motives of her heart, acting as if they know what she should and what she shouldn't be doing. And they didn't know at all. That was unjust judgment. There's a lot of ways that we can break this command. We break this command when we think the worst of other people. That's a way of judging other people. We break this command when we only speak to other people about their faults. Now listen, sometimes you have to speak to people about their faults, right? Sometimes you do. But if you only speak to people about their faults, I bet you're breaking this command. We break this command when we judge an entire life only by its worst moments. Listen, you know how that is, right? I think in every one of our lives, there are instances that we're deeply ashamed of and we would not want our entire life to be judged by that worst moment. We break this command when we judge the hidden motives of other people, don't we sometimes think we know all about somebody else's motives when we do not? We break this command when we judge other people without considering ourselves in their same circumstance. Haven't we done this before? Well, there's no excuse for that. I would never do such a thing. Oh, yeah? Well, maybe if you were in their same circumstances, you would be much more tempted to do that than you think you would be. And then finally, I would say that we break this command when we judge others without being mindful that we ourselves will be judged. 
Listen, if you're going to judge somebody else, if you're going to assess their character or the fruit of their life, you better do it as someone who is fully aware that one day you will be judged. Because look at this verse again. Can we read it one more time? Verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you not be judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. I want you to notice, Jesus did not prohibit the judgment of others. Jesus didn't say, I forbid you to judge other people. He simply told us that our judgment should be completely fair and that we should only judge other people by a standard that we ourselves would want to be judged by. And isn't this exactly where many people fail? Exactly. Because they judge others by one standard and they judge themselves by a much easier standard. Listen, notice what Jesus said here. It's very powerful. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now this is the principle upon which Jesus built the command, judge not that you not be judged. God will measure to us according to the same measure that we use for other people. And listen, isn't that a pretty powerful motivation for you to be loving and generous and forgiving and gracious to other people? How loving and forgiving and gracious will God be unto you? How about this? Just exactly as how much you are to other people. Whoa. I better be more loving, right? I better be more forgiving. I better be more gracious to other people. If we want more of those things from God, we should give more of them to others. See, this is the way we want to do it. When we scoop out the uh, love and goodness and kindness to other people, we want to use the little tiny scoop, right? The little tiny scoop. Here you go. Here's your forgiveness. Here's your love. Here's your grace. I give it to you. And then when we want those same things from God, what do we want? We want the super-duper big scoop, right? We want him to use a snow shovel in giving us those things, right? That's what we want. God says, no, no, no. I'm going to use the same scoop for you that you use for other people. Say, whoa. Now I'm going to be much more loving, much more forgiving. Now, we should only judge other people when we are mindful of the fact that we ourselves will be judged. And that God is looking at those things in us. Now here's an illustration of Jesus' principle right here in verses 3 through 5. He says, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And this is a funny figure that Jesus uses here, right? He thinks of two guys. One of them has a little speck in the eye. In the ancient Greek, speck could mean anything. A little piece of dirt, a little piece of sawdust, a little piece of wood, a little piece... It's just a little piece of something. That's all it means. There's a little piece of something in somebody's eye. And then there's another guy, and he's got a big wooden board sticking out of his eyeball. You know? And here's the guy with the big wooden board. Hey, let me help you with that. And he turns around, and he's hitting people with the big wooden board. Let me help you with that little thing in your eye. It's a very humorous figure that Jesus uses here. But what does he use it for? He uses it to illustrate a point that we can grab onto immediately, that we are generally 
far more tolerant to our own sin than we are to the sins of others, right? Our own sin. Well, look, there's good reasons why I did that. For you, there's no excuse. For me, well, you just got to understand it was this, it was that, the other thing. For you, well, there's no excuse whatsoever. You see the big difference? Now, though there might be a literal speck in somebody's eye, there would never be a literal board in somebody's eyes. It's just using these figures in a humorous way. But it's a real phenomenon. You want an example of this? How about the religious leaders of Jesus' day when they brought to him the woman who was taken in adultery, right? Now, was there a speck, so to speak, in the woman's eye? Absolutely, right? She was in sin. There's no doubt about it. There's no defending it. But as Jesus pointed out when he confronted in his own brilliant way these people, he made it clear that their sin was far worse than hers. They had boards in their eyes while she admittedly had a speck. And so Jesus made that clear there. But notice the estimation he has of the people who do this. He says, look, a plank is in your own eye. And then he says that if you do this, you are a hypocrite. Again, the problem is not that you want to correct the fault in your brother. Is it a wrong thing to remove a speck from a brother's eye? No, not at all. But it's a wrong thing to remove a speck in your brother's eye when you've got a board coming out of your own. That is what makes you a hypocrite. And might we say that when we are hypocritical in these kind of things, other people can almost always see it more easily than we can see it. It's very easy for us to think, well, nobody can see the board that's in my eye. But listen, other people can see it very, very easily. You want a good example of this from the pages of Scripture? Do you remember in the life of King David? There's King David after he had committed his dreadful sin with Bathsheba and after he had committed the even worst sin of murdering Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. There was David on his throne one day, and the prophet Nathan comes to him. What does the prophet Nathan do? He tells him a story. He tells him a story about a man who has a little lamb, and his neighbor, who has a whole bunch of lambs, he has a friend coming over for dinner. And what does he do? He takes the poor man's one little lamb, and he kills it, and he serves it as food for his neighbor. And Nathan says, well, what should be done? This man David says, listen, that man should be judged severely for what he did. And what did Nathan do? He pointed out that David was the hypocrite. He could see the fault so clearly in the story that Nathan the prophet told, but David couldn't even see the much bigger board sticking out of his own eye. That's how it is for us. And by the way, isn't this the reason why we need the searching voice of the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts? We really need this. You know, I, I look in myself in the mirror. I look upon your faces here tonight. It's pretty easy to think, spiritually speaking, might there not be some boards in our eyes that we just can't see? Is there a person here among us who, who might not be like King David, where we have this glaring, obvious sin in our life? We just don't see it. No, no, no. We need the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts. We need to be open to the Spirit of God to speak to our hearts. But what Jesus is saying? Look, pay attention to your own life first. You know, listen, be, before you start pointing out the faults of other people, why don't you make sure your own hands are clean? 
Why don't you make sure your own life is together first? This just speaks of humility, right? This is the voice of Jesus warning us, don't be a hypocrite in this regard. Now, after these first five verses where Jesus says, don't judge, don't be a hypocrite, now in verse 6 he says something that I think he intends to balance out what he has just said. Notice what he says. He says, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. You see, what Jesus seems to be doing in verse 6 is saying something like this. I have just warned you about having a judgmental attitude. I've just warned you against being a, a blind critic of other people. But I don't mean to tell you that you should throw away all discernment. No, no, no. You must discern that there are some good, precious things that should not be given to those who will receive them with contempt. We might say here that what Jesus means is this. Listen, don't be judgmental. That's the first five verses, right? Don't be judgmental, but don't throw out all discernment either. So what does he say? Again, don't give what's holy to the dogs. And there you got to get back into the ancient conception of a dog, right? Don't think of playful Labrador puppies playing around. Oh, the sweet little doggies. That was not the conception of a dog in biblical culture. In their conception, when they thought of a dog, they thought of a mangy, old, dangerous dog who would go around and bite children and scavenge whatever he could, moving around in packs in the neighborhood. They didn't think of, you know, Lassie or, you know, some old yeller or something like that. They, they, they thought of dangerous, terrible dogs. So he says, don't give what's holy to the dogs nor cast your pearls before swine. Why? Lest they trample them underfoot and turn and tear you in pieces. There's two very interesting different ways of understanding this. Some people understand this by saying, okay, what Jesus is saying is he's talking about the precious things of the kingdom and we shouldn't give them to unbelievers who would despise them. You, you meet an unbeliever who's just pouring out blasphemies against the Lord, who wants nothing to do with God, who rejects Jesus again and again. Jesus says, well, just leave him alone. Don't keep casting the pearls of the gospel before such hardened rejection. And we see this again and again in the scriptures. We see this in the book of Acts, Right? where Paul was determined over and over again to bring the gospel to the Jewish people first, right? But eventually he just said, look, forget it. I'm going to the Gentiles. You you Jewish people in your hardened rejection of the Messiah that came to you, I'm just going to forget about you for now. Let somebody else reach you for the glory of God. I'm going to focus my ministry upon the Gentiles. That's one way of understanding this, and I think it's valid. But I just kind of want to spin your head a different way on this. In the context here, Jesus is speaking about hypocrites, right? Remember the guy with the big wooden board in his eye? Couldn't Jesus be saying here, the dogs and the swine represent hypocritical and judgmental believers, and these sinning hypocrites should not be offered the the pearls that belong to the community of the saints. In other words, this may be an early prescription for church discipline that Jesus was laying the foundation for. I will tell you that this is how it was understood in the early church. The the, the Didache, or to give its full name, the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles, which is a document that dates back almost to the year 100 A.D., 
It was sort of the first church manual in the Christian church. It says this, Let no one eat or drink of the Lord's Supper except those baptized into the name of the Lord. For as regards this, the Lord has said, Give not that which is holy unto dogs. In other words, it was meaning to say that only people who were genuine followers of Jesus Christ could could have communion. Only those who were really followers of Jesus Christ could be received as members into the church. Now again, I want you to think of one other aspect of this. Jesus was also speaking in the context of correcting another brother, right? There you are with the speck in your eye, and I'm going to come deal with that speck in your eye? Well, listen, is that a good thing? If it's done in a godly way, it's a good thing, right? That's a pearl that I'm offering to you. But listen, we must not cast that pearl of brotherly correction before swine, those who are determined not to receive it. Now, which whether of these that Jesus is emphasizing here, and actually I think that the, the, the truth of all three of these touches upon this. The idea is simply this, is that we need to exercise discernment. Now, please don't think for a moment that Jesus said this to discourage us from sharing the gospel. In the very same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us to let our lights shine before the world. Jesus said this to call us to discernment and then to encourage us to look for prepared hearts that are ready to receive. When you find somebody who has a prepared heart to hear the gospel, you should get excited. Say, listen, I don't think that's a dog. I don't think that's a swine. (laughs) That's somebody who's ready to hear the gospel. God is working on their hearts. Because man left to himself has no interest in the gospel, right? But when God is working upon somebody's heart, then we can take encouragement by that and pray and preach to them with great boldness. Now, moving on into verse 7, Jesus is now going to give us some instructions in prayer. And we remember that the Sermon on the Mount is somewhat like this, right? He sort of deals with subject to subject. So first he talked about this judgmental attitude and then having discernment. And now in verses 7 and 8, he begins a section where he's going to talk briefly on prayer. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. That a wonderful promise. Think of the progressive intensity. You begin by asking, right? Uh, hey, can I have something? You know, hey, can I have a, a cookie? All right, I want a cookie. Can I have one? Well, I, I don't get it. So what do I do? I start seeking after. The, I start looking for it. Hey, are there any cookies here? Let me look. I'll look in the cupboard. I'm looking for the cupboard. Where, where is it? And then finally, I ask for the cookie. I don't get it. I seek for the cookie. I don't get it. So what do I do? I start knocking on the door of wherever the cookies are held, and I say, let me into the cookies. It's increasing intensity. And this is the idea that Jesus is calling us to in prayer. Now, by the way, didn't Jesus already deal with prayer in the Sermon on the Mount? Haven't we already heard him talk about prayer? And yet now he comes back to it. Doesn't that tell you something about the importance of prayer? that Jesus touched on this subject at least twice in the Sermon on the Mount in two different places. And in this threefold description of prayer, as asking, seeking, and knocking, we see three different aspects of prayer and three different aspects of reward in prayer. Prayer is like asking. 
You simply make your request known to God, right? You ask God. Do, do you want something from God? It, what should you do? Ask. What does James say? You have not because you ask not, right? So you ask. And what does Jesus say? He says, everyone who asks receives. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you receive whatever you want, but if you ask God in faith, and by the way, the particular verb tenses used in the language of Jesus here tell us that Jesus meant a continual asking. He didn't mean asking one time. He meant keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. But if we understand that, if we ask in the sense that Jesus meant here, God will answer you. Now, he may answer no. He may answer wait. He may say, here you go, but he will answer. And by the way, isn't no sometimes a very precious answer from God. I don't know, some of you are kind of young. You haven't lived enough years yet. When you live as many years as I have, and I don't want to exaggerate how old I am, but I'm older than, than some of you. Listen, you will come to thank God for the prayers that he said no to. Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you said no. Now listen, that is still an answer. And he said, you'll answer so when you ask, you'll receive. And receiving is the reward of asking. But prayer is also like seeking, that we search after God, his word and his will. And what did Jesus say? You seek and you'll find. Finding is the reward of seeking, right? Isn't it frustrated to seek for something, to search for something and you don't find it? When's the last time you lost your car keys and you couldn't find them? Oh man, isn't that the worst? You look and you look and you look. And then finally, uh, it's a beautiful thing when you find them, right? What Jesus says here, that is the reward of seeking. Finding is the reward of seeking. But then prayer is also like knocking and knocking until the door is open and we seek entrance into the great heavenly palace of our great king. And entering through that opened door into his palace, that's the reward of knocking. The door is open to you. And might I say that is the best reward of all. I love that idea. I love the idea of knocking. Do you know what knocking implies? It implies that there's some resistance. I walk up to the door, and the door is wide open. Do I need to knock? No, I walk right in, but I walk up to the door and it's closed. Hmm, nobody's opened the door for me. I wonder if they'll let me in. Oh, well, I'll try. I'll knock. And haven't you ever sensed that in prayer? Haven't you sensed resistance? Haven't you sensed, God, where are you? It feels like maybe there's some resistance between you and me. Don't you see what God's telling you? He's saying, knock. God, how come the door isn't immediately open? God says, I want you to knock. Knock. Knock at my door right then. Even when you sense that the door is closed and you have to knock, then continue to do so. You just don't say, well, if the door is closed, I'm not going to bother with this. Right? I walk up to the door. Well, if God wanted me in there, he'd open the door already. No, he wants you in there and he wants you to knock. But yet the image of knocking also implies to us that there's a door that can be opened. Can I just say something obvious? Doors are meant to be opened. They're made for the purpose of entrance. Jesus didn't say you come to a wall and start knocking, right? Can you picture a man before a brick wall, knocking on the brick wall? What a fool, right? There's nothing there to open. But no, Jesus says, there's a door here. Come. And this is the promise of God in prayer. You come to his door. Yes, you, you have to knock, but the door is there for it to be opened. And then when we come to God's door, all we have to do is knock. 
You know, if it were locked, a deadbolt here, a chain here, a clasp there, if it were locked against us, then we would need a burglar's tools to break in. But that's not necessary, right? You don't have to get a, a, an acetylene torch and cut through God's door. You don't have to break it in with kicking. You don't have to get a, a pick and pick the lock. You don't have to do any of those things. What does he say to do? He says, knock. And even if I don't have any of the skills of the burglar, any of the strength of the mechanic or the welder, any of that thing, if I don't have any of that, I can knock. Any fool can knock at a door. I love what Spurgeon said about this. Let me read you this quote from him. He said, an uneducated man can knock if that is all which is required of him. A man can knock, though he may be no philosopher. A dumb man can knock. A blind man can knock. A man with a paralyzed hand may knock. The way to open heaven's gate is wonderfully simplified to those who are lowly enough to follow the Holy Spirit's guidance and ask, seek, and knock believingly. God has not provided a salvation which can only be understood by learned men. It is intended for the ignorant, for the short-witted, and the dying, as well as for others, and hence it must be as plain as knocking at a door. That's what God says. You come, ask, seek, knock, and it will be given to you. God promises an answer to the one who diligently seeks him. You know, there has to be that sense of diligence, though. Many times we pray before God and our prayers are what we might call passionless. We pray and we don't care. I have found myself praying with this attitude. Now, I would never say this because I'm too spiritual to say it, but it's in my heart. And God can read my heart, right? I say something like this. My, my, my heart is like this. God, I don't really care about this. Would you care about it for me? You know, God sees that kind of deadness of soul. That's not asking, seeking, and knocking. That's just sort of doing time before God. I don't know. God says, no, I want you to share. I want you to care deeply about the things I care about. The things that I want to see done, ask for those. The, the, the things that I want to accomplish, seek after those. The doors that I want to open, knock upon those doors. God values persistence and passion and prayer because they show that we share his heart. It shares that we care about the things that he cares about. You know, persistence is not needed in prayer because we have to overcome God's stubborn reluctance. As if God was a lazy father that if we keep begging long enough, he'll give us the keys to the car so that we can borrow the automobile. It's not like that at all. No, God says simply ask, ask, and share my heart. Matter of fact, if that wasn't enough, Jesus is going to illustrate the very giving nature of God. Look here at verse 9. He says, Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a ship, for a fish, will he give him a serpent? And if you then, being evil, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, or assume your Father who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? You know, Jesus here is making an illustration. He's saying, you know the nature of human fathers. And your human father may not have been that great. I don't know, maybe you have a good dad. Maybe you had a bad father. I don't know. I, maybe your father was somewhere in between. He says, even if your father was evil, if you asked him for an egg, he wouldn't give you a scorpion. If he asked for bread, 
You wouldn't give him a stone. You see, Jesus here is making it clear that God doesn't have to be persuaded or appeased in prayer. He wants to give us not just bread, but even more than we ask for. And you know what? I thank God for this. There have been times without me knowing I have asked God for a serpent. And he didn't give it to me. Just like a loving, knowing parent, God says, no, I'm going to mercifully spare you that. Then he says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven? You know, it's blasphemous to deny God's answer to the seeking heart. You then imply that God is worse than even an evil parent is. Instead, in comparison to the best human father, do you notice the words that Jesus said there in verse 11? How much more is God a good and loving father? Now, I love that statement. How much more? You know, Jesus never tells us how much more. Well, Jesus, tell me, how much more? Jesus didn't even tell you. He leaves it to your imagination. He says, you know what? A lot more. Way, way, way more. You know, the distance from the earth to the sun, the the distance from the earth to the farthest star, way, way, way more is God more loving, more gracious, more wonderful than any human parent. It's a beautiful picture of the goodness of God. Now, in verse 12, Jesus gives a summary statement on how we should treat one another. He's warming up to the conclusion of his sermon. He's preached this great sermon. And I would say that most of the sermon has talked about the relationship between God and man. But Jesus has dealt in the sermon, here and there definitely, about the relationship between man and man, right? How we should treat others. We saw that in the first several verses of the text that we examine here this evening. But just so nobody misunderstands, Jesus is going to tell us exactly the mentality we should have in dealing with other people. Notice it right here, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Great verse, right? What do we call that? The golden rule. And it is golden. I heard of a king who actually put those words on his palace walls in gold. And I've heard other people twist it, pervert it. They say, listen, I'll tell you what the golden rule is. The golden rule is this. He who has the gold makes the rules. But you could say this, that this really is the golden rule. And by the way, the idea behind this great command, let's just clarify what it is. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. The general thought behind that command was well known in other cultures, in other societies, in other... Matter of fact, Jewish rabbis said almost exactly the same thing around the time of Jesus. You can't say that the idea behind the golden rule was invented by Jesus. Uh, Around the year 20 AD, Rabbi Hillel was challenged by a Gentile to summarize the law in the short time that the Gentile could stand on one leg. In other words, a Gentile comes before Rabbi Hillel, he stands on one leg, and he says, okay, Mr. Famous Rabbi Man, tell me the whole law while I can stand on this one leg. Rabbi Hillel says, okay, listen, I'll tell you what it is. He says, what is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. Okay, I'll say that again. What is hateful to you, 
do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. Now, that is stating the same idea, but in the negative. And in other cultures, in other societies, they have stated this golden rule, which you might call the, I don't know, the silver rule. It's not quite as good to state it in the negative. If you don't want somebody to do it to you, then you don't do it to somebody else. Okay, fine. Now, that's not a bad thing to live by. But you see what Jesus did? Jesus put it in the positive. Whatever you do want somebody to do to you, that's what you should do to somebody else. And in doing this, Jesus made the command much broader. It's the difference between saying, okay, I'm going to drive my car and I'm not going to break any traffic laws, right? I'm going to go the right speed limit. I'm going to stop where I should stop. I'm going to do all the laws. I'm going to do all that. Some of you are laughing like you've been not keeping the traffic laws lately, okay? But anyway, you say, okay, I'm not going to do that. There's a difference between that and saying, oh, I'm going to pull over and help somebody whose car has broken down, right? The, the negative is in saying, I'm not going to break the law. The positive is in saying, I'm going to positively do good to somebody else when it is not required of me. By the way, under the negative form of the rule, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus spoke about the judgment between the sheep and the goats. And why did he condemn the goats? He said, because I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked and you gave nothing to clothe me. Now listen, under the negative form of the rule, everybody passes on that. But under the positive form of the golden rule, they're under judgment. And that's the judgment by which the goats in Matthew 26, excuse me, Matthew chapter 25, were found guilty. Now, I would say that this applies in every arena of life, but as a pastor, can I tell you one place where I think it especially applies? It applies in Christian fellowship. You know, sometimes I, I see people, I've counseled people over the years, and sometimes they, they, they'll come into the, the atmosphere of Christian fellowship, they'll be around other believers, and they'll say, nobody's friendly to me. Well, who are you friendly to? Nobody helps me, nobody cares about me. Well, who do you help? Who do you care for? I'm away from church and nobody calls me to see where I am. Have you ever once called somebody else because they were at church, not at church? You see this kind of thing. And you find if you would just take this one simple rule, how do I want people to treat me in the body of Christ? That's how I'm going to treat other people. If you would just do that, listen, you would have all the fellowship and friends you could ever dream for within the body of Christ. And then notice what Jesus said here. For this is the law and the prophets. This summarizes all that the law and all that the prophets say about how we should treat others. If we would simply treat others the way that we would want to be treated, we would naturally obey all that the law says about our relationships with others. Think about it. If everybody acted upon this, there'd be no slavery in the world, there'd be no war in the world, there'd be no swearing in the world, there'd be no violence in the world, there'd be no lying in the world, there'd be no robbing in the world. Everything would be a world full of justice and love. What an amazing kingdom that this king reigns over Jesus. Now, when we read this, let me point something out to you. Something you may not want to hear. This makes the law easier to understand, but it doesn't make it any easier to obey. Right? 
Oh, yeah, I can understand. But it doesn't make it one bit easier to obey. There is no one who has consistently done unto others as they would like others to do unto them. And so listen, this is our Christian obligation. And once we've been born again by the Spirit of God, it's what we should endeavor to do with all of our hearts. But make no mistake about it. Just because you understand what it is that God wants you to do, you cannot do it apart from the animating power of the Spirit of God within your life. Now, starting at verse 13, Jesus is going to do something in a masterful way here to the end of the chapter. He is going to call his listeners to decision, to decide. Like a brilliant preacher, because of course that's what Jesus was. Listen to this. He says, enter in by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, I want you to notice, Jesus did not speak of this gate as our destiny, but this gate is the entrance to a path. In other words, it's not like you walk along this path and finally come to a gate. No, no, no. You go into the gate and then you're on a path. And Jesus says there's a gate that's plenty wide and it leads to a very broad path. But that path is a path of destruction. And then there's another thing. There's a little gate. It's very interesting the word that Jesus uses here. He uses a word that in classic old Victorian English was called a wicket gate. Do you know what a wicket gate is? A wicket gate. I didn't say wicked gate. I said wicket gate. A wicket gate is a little door within a door. Have you ever seen that, right? I have a, a door, and then inside the door, there's like a little servant's door, a little door, right? A door within a door. Not exactly like a little door that they put in there for a dog or a cat or something like that. A little bit bigger than that. But there's the regular-sized door, and then there's the wicket gate, the little door. Well, listen. What Jesus is saying is, through that little door, there's a little path, and you go in through that gate, and that is the, the path that leads to life. Jesus understood, and he taught, that not all ways and not all destinations are equally good. One leads to destruction, others lead to life. Another it leads to life, I should say. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? How, how offensive this is to the modern way of thinking. The modern way of thinking says this. It says, listen, man, it doesn't matter what road you're on because it's the traveling on the road itself that's the important thing. Hey, there's joy in the journey, and that's what's important, right? We're just all searchers along the same path. Listen, Jesus wouldn't know what you're talking about. Jesus would say, I hope you enjoy the journey, but it's a hard road. But at the end of that hard road is life. Jesus was not encouraging people who were already committed disciples with this. No, no, he's not saying you press on along the narrow way, keep going. No, he's saying, listen, if you are going to follow me, know what it's going to be like. It's a small gate and it's a narrow way. The true gate is both narrow and difficult and if your road has a gate that's easy and well-traveled, you'd be very wise to watch out. All right? So there's a choice here, right? There's two different ways. 
Now there's a true and a false presented to us in the form of false prophets. Look at this, verses 15 through 20. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. You know, again, Jesus didn't just say, hey, listen, it's just wonderful to be a tree, right? Just be a tree planted on God's wonderful green earth. She said, no, what kind of tree are you? Because not all trees make it in the kingdom of God. Only trees that bear good fruit. And that's why Jesus says, beware of false prophets. In the beginning of that section, I just read it, verse 15. You see, Jesus just warned us in the previous section about a path that leads to destruction. And the tragic fact is, is there are people who will encourage you on that path that leads to destruction. Now he reminds us that there's a lot of people who would guide you along that way and the first step in combating those false prophets is to simply beware of them. Look at it again at verse 15. Beware of false prophets. I wonder if that is not one of the most tragically disregarded commands by many Christians today. They're not even aware of false prophets. They think that anybody who opens the Bible and starts talking must be teaching the truth of God. Now maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but you better discern it. You better beware of false prophets. And so, he says, these false prophets do what? They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Interesting here, because there's, there's two thoughts that might be suggested to this. One thing is you think of a wolf dressed like a sheep, right? You, you can picture that in your mind, right? There's a wolf with a little sheepskin on, and he's prancing around. Oh, look, it's a little sheep, you know, walking around, and he's got the sheepskin on. There's another thing that might be suggested by this. Some people suggest that in the ancient world at that time, what a shepherd would wear would be a sheepskin. It would be turned uh, with, the, with the wool on the inside, right? And so the outside would be the skin part, and on the inside would be the fur, would be the wool. But that's what a shepherd would wear. And what Jesus says, might be saying here is, look out for those shepherds who are wearing a sheepskin but really they're wolves. Either one could be suggestive here that the same basic idea remains the same. And I'll tell you, these false prophets, they deceive and deny their true character. I tell you, there are many Christians today, they would not know a false prophet unless that false prophet came up to them and introduced them and say, hi, I'm a false prophet. And listen, if that's the only way you're ever going to know a false prophet, you're never going to know a false prophet because they won't introduce themselves that way. A false prophet will always claim to be true. An unfaithful shepherd will always act as if he's a true shepherd. Now listen, and I tell you many times these false prophets or these false shepherds, they even deceive themselves and they believe themselves to be sheep when in fact they are ravenous wolves. You know, the basic fault of these false prophets is that they're self-interested. They want gain. They want an easy life. They, they want prestige. Or they want the desire to advance their own ideas and agendas and not God's. 
So what does Jesus say? How can you discern? You know, it's kind of interesting. Jesus, Jesus didn't say, well, pick up the sheepskin and see if it's a wolf underneath. No, he didn't say that. He said, you'll know them by their fruits. We guard ourselves against false prophets by taking heed to their fruits. And this means paying attention to several aspects of their life and ministry, not just one. We pay attention to their manner of living. Listen, if there's a teacher, if there's a prophet, look at their manner of living. Do they show righteousness? Do they show humility? Do they show faithfulness in the way that they live? When you see the life and the manner of a teacher, ask yourself, does that look like it could be something Jesus would do and live and act like? We should pay attention to the content of their teaching. Is it true fruit from God's word or is it man-centered? Does it just appeal to ears that want to be tickled? You take a look at their life. You take a look at the content of their teaching. But thirdly, you take a look at the effect of their teaching. Do people grow in Jesus or are they merely being entertained and are they eventually falling away? Notice what Jesus said. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. The fruit is the inevitable result of who we are. Eventually, and even though it may take a long time for the harvest to come, the good or the bad fruit is evident and it reveals what kind of tree we are. I want you to notice something that Jesus said. It's really pretty strong, and he says it right here in verse, um, where is it? It's verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit. I don't know if you've ever thought about it. To be honest, before I studied again for this teaching tonight, I never really saw it that way. You see, what I thought Jesus said is that every tree that bears bad fruit That's the one that's going to be chopped down. He didn't just say that. He said, every tree that does not bear good fruit. Because really, there's three options, right? You can bear bad fruit. You can bear good fruit. And you can bear no fruit. And the no fruit tree bears no good fruit. You see, to not have good fruit is to have evil. And it's not merely the wicked. It's not merely the person who has poison apples growing off of their tree, so to speak. But it's the neutral person. It's the person who bears no fruit. You know, earlier in the chapter, Jesus warned us to judge ourselves first and to look for the speck in our own eye before turning the attention to the beam in our neighbor's eye. Therefore, if we're going to be fruit inspectors, Whose tree should we look at first? Our own. Good fruit, bad fruit, no fruit. Only one of them is acceptable to God. Only one of them is an evidence of salvation. All right, verse 21. All right, we had the decision between two ways. We had the decision between true and false prophets, the decision between two trees. Now it's the decision between two claims of lordship. Look at this, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? 
Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Boy, you just see Jesus building the intensity at the end of this sermon, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus spoke here of someone who has a proper verbal confession. They know the right words. And by the way, that makes me fear sometimes for people who grow up in Christian homes. You know why? Because people who grow up in Christian homes, they know the right words. They know what to say. They know the right answers. Whether or not it's in the heart, that's a whole other thing, right? Jesus speaks here of people who know the right words to say. They know to call Jesus Lord. Now that's important, that's vital, but it's never enough by itself. Now I hope you say unto Jesus, Lord, Lord, You can't be saved unless you do call upon him as Lord. However, even though hypocrites may say it, we should not be ashamed to say it. Nevertheless, it's not enough. And this warning of Jesus, it applies to people who speak or say things to Jesus or about Jesus, but don't really mean it. It's not that they believe Jesus is a devil. They simply say the words very superficially. Their minds is elsewhere. They believe there's value in bare words and fulfilling some kind of religious duty with no heart, no soul, no spirit, but with only bare words and passing thoughts. That's some people, right? But then other people, they say, Lord, Lord, and maybe they mean it in their spiritual life, but their spiritual life has nothing to do with their daily life. They they go to church and perhaps they fulfill some kind of religious duty, but yet they... They forget about God and man as soon as they leave church. I like one illustration that the great Puritan commentator John Trapp used in regard to this. He said, There are those who speak like angels and live like devils. They have Jacob's smooth tongue, but Esau's rough hands. And that's how it is with some. And Jesus says, They say this to me, And they'll say it to me on that day. Now, did you notice that? I want you to notice verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. And then he says in verse 22, many will say to me in that day. Do you understand? Did you just pass that over without considering that? Do you understand what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is saying, listen, an obscure Galilean rabbi sitting on a hillside probably in view of the Sea of Galilee, he looks at his listeners and he says, you're going to talk to me on the Day of Judgment. How crazy is that? What if I were to say that to you? What if I, you know, on the Day of Judgment, when you have to answer to me, what are you talking about, you crazy man? Like, I'm going to answer to you on the Day of Judgment? Do you see what an astounding claim to deity this is? Do you understand that Jesus says that you need to say, I am Lord. Now some people, some people are just dishonest enough with the scriptures to say that Jesus never claimed to be God. But if you say, you got to come to me and say, Lord, Lord. And if you say, I am going to sit in judgment of you on the day of judgment, I'm claiming to be God. It's pretty radical. I didn't want you to pass that by. But notice, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we prophesy? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we preach? 
They did a lot of things. They had impressive spiritual accomplishments. They prophesied. They cast out demons. They did many miracles and wonders. Those are wonderful things, but they mean nothing without true fellowship, true connection with Jesus. By the way, I want you to notice, Jesus never protested their claims. He he didn't say, you didn't really prophesy. You didn't really do miracles. You, You didn't really cast out demons. And this leads us to understand that sometimes miracles are granted even through pretended believers. Oh, if a miracle is done through the hands of a man, or if a prophecy is given, or if a demon is cast out, that man wants you to believe that it's because he's so spiritual. But let me tell you something. Jesus is telling you right now that that man may be bound for hell. And yet God may still use that person. Why? Well, there's many reasons. Let me just throw out two of them very quickly to you. God may still use that man because, number one, he loves his people. Oh, God doesn't use that man to participate in that person's healing because he loves the man that he used. He did it because he loves the person that he wants to be healed. And number two, God does it just to blow our minds. Just so we don't think that it's all a matter of earning and deserving before him. And significantly, these people did these things even in the name of Jesus. We prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did many wonders in your name. And that was not enough. They did not have a true relationship of love and fellowship with Jesus. Listen, if preaching could save a man, Judas would not have been damned. If prophesying could save a man, Balaam would not have gone to hell. But they did. So what does Jesus say? He says, I never knew you. Depart from me, those of you who practice lawlessness. In the end, there's one basis of salvation. It isn't mere verbal confession. It isn't spiritual works, even miraculous works, but it's knowing Jesus and being known by him. It is our connection to Jesus by the gift of faith that he gives to us that secures our salvation. Connected to Jesus, you're secure. Without connection to Jesus, all the miracles and all the great works and all the great words do nothing. That's a pretty heavy word. Now, Jesus concludes the sermon. If it could get any more intense, he does it. Verse 24. Now it's the decision between two builders. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who's built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and built beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Jesus illustrates this by calling our attention to two builders. And you know what? The house that these two different builders looked like looked the same from the outside, right? And let me tell you, these two builders worked very hard. They they did the same work. They, They had to plan. They had to get the supplies. They had to build. There was nothing wrong with the building of these houses themselves. And they were probably fine houses to live in. The only difference was not how much work they put into them, not how well they were designed on the blueprints, not how well they were furnished, not even the quality of the building themselves. The entire difference was whether or not they were built on a proper foundation. 
By the way, when Jesus talks about being built on the rock, he's speaking of a rocky foundation. In other words, he's not talking about being built on like a great big boulder or something like that. He's talking about a foundation that's rocky. And so in other words, the, the, the wise man, he dug down to the rock and built his house on that very foundation. Therefore, when the rain came down and the floods came and the winds blew, by the way, I want you to notice it was tested on every side. It was tested from heaven because the rains came down. It was tested on the earth because the floods came. It was uh, tested from this world because the winds beat upon it. And all of that stuff, all the time, all the storms of life, it proved the strength of the foundation. The strength of a foundation is hidden, but it's only revealed in the trials of life. And Jesus says, Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, that is like the man who builds his house on the bad foundation, the foundation of sand. Listen, you hear his word and you don't do it, that's your ruin. Doing nothing is your ruin. Doing nothing. In the book of Numbers, there's a curse given. And the curse is given that says, be sure your sin will find you out. That's Numbers 32, 23. Have you ever heard that one? Your sin will find you out. Do you know what it is in the book of Numbers, the particular sin that will find you out? It's very interesting. If you go back to the book of Numbers, we think, oh, well, you know, I better not do that. My sin will everybody find out. I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. The sin that will find you out that's described for us in the book of Numbers is simply this. The sin of doing nothing. And that's what Jesus describes here. It's the sin of doing nothing, of hearing but not doing. That is the sin that will be found out. As he listen. The second builder, the guy who built upon sound, where did he go wrong? He didn't seek out a bad foundation. It's just he didn't care about the foundation. It's not like he deliberately built it bad. He just didn't think. It was inconsiderateness. It's not so much neglecting two foundations. It's saying, I just don't even care about the foundation. I'll just build. And listen, that's the way the world thinks today. And listen, it doesn't matter where you're going, just as long as you're going. It doesn't matter what path you're on, as long as you're traveling. It doesn't matter if your house is on this foundation or on that foundation. Just build a house. Just says, no, no, no. There's only one foundation that will survive this world. You see, it's possible to read all this and miss the point of it. When Jesus says here in this end, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man. I don't think there's a single one of us who can read this without seeing that we do not, we have not, and we will not ever completely do them. And even if we do them in a general sense, which we should, animated by the Spirit of God, then the revelation of the kingdom of God and the Sermon on the Mount, it drives us back and back again as needy saviors upon our Savior. You see, I think Jesus had two great intentions. He wanted people, after this message, to first of all go, well, now I understand better what God requires of me. That's the one thing he wanted. Let me better instruct you as to what God requires of you. But here's the other thing he wanted. And he goes, and I can't do it. I need a Savior. 
Listen, there was a mount upon which Jesus preached, right? That mountain cannot save you. It can show you what God wants to do with your saved life. But the mount that Jesus preached the sermon upon can't save you. It's the mount that he died upon that saves you. And then once having received that salvation from that mount of Calvary, then we can come back to the Sermon on the Mount and say, now Jesus, what do you want to build into my life? Let's finish it up here. We've been here long enough. Verses 28 and 29. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he had taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. His audience could notice that Jesus taught with an authority that the other teachers in his day did not have. They often only just quoted other rabbis. Well, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says that. Jesus didn't talk like that. Jesus spoke as someone having authority because he had inherent authority. They were surprised. They were surprised at the substance of the teaching, and they were surprised by the authority of the teaching. And whenever God's word is presented as it truly is, the revelation of God, then it will have an inherent power, and it will astonish people. And when we really understand Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, we should be astonished also. If you're not astonished, I wonder if you've understood it. But listen, we also understand it's good to have your hearers astonished, but that's not the goal of a preacher, right? No, the goal of the preacher is you want to do far more than astonish your listeners. But they could not help but notice that there was something different about Jesus. And this is where we started up next week when we get into Matthew chapter 8. He's going to show us more and more what is different about Jesus. Because now, after presenting three very condensed chapters, Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, about the teaching of Jesus, now Matthew is going to bring in more and more about the great works of Jesus. And that's where we're going to pick it up next week. But should we just remind us ourselves one more time? When we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we see more and more of what God requires of us and that we are unable to perform it. That drives us to the Mount of our Salvation. Mount Calvary. And having received his salvation, having received the Spirit of God given to us as part of the New Covenant, then we can come back to the Sermon on the Mount and say, Lord, now I want to live to the best of your working in me this life of the kingdom because you are my king and I want to be one of your kingdom citizens. Father, that's our prayer here tonight. We recognize you, Jesus, as a great king who has every right to reign over us. And we receive your reign tonight. And Father, I pray that for everyone who listens to this, that they would be driven to Calvary to put their trust in a crucified Jesus. Lord, as much as we honor the teaching ministry of Jesus, we understand that it is primarily his work on the cross that accomplishes our salvation. But Lord, having that accomplished, we come back to Jesus as our teacher and we say, Lord and King, teach us how to live. So teach us how, Lord. Teach us how to take these words of not judging one another, of being generous to each other, of loving you, of praying, of making the right decisions, of choosing you. Lord, help us to put it all in the right context and help us all to live it out with you as our King and we as your loyal subjects. Jesus' name. Amen.